Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. Revelation chapter 20. This is an exciting book because it's filled with controversy. And you know how much I love controversy. (laughs) So here's what we're going to do. So this chapter is wild. Um, This chapter has been argued and debated by some of the smartest theologians that you could imagine all the way back to the second century of the church. So we're we're not going to settle any debates today, but what I want what I want for us today as we leave this place is to have an understanding on where uh, believers fall on this chapter and equip you with enough information so that you can decide where you fall interpretation-wise on this. Now I, I need to make just a small disclaimer as we've been going through the book of Revelation. I've been offering alternative perspectives on the interpretation of this book, possibly ones that are different from the way that you've been brought up to think. And and maybe perhaps you've been like, I didn't even know that that was a thing. I didn't know anybody thought that. I thought everyone kind of thought the same way. The hesitation uh, or uh, the temptation might be, well, well, if revelation is up for interpretation, then isn't like everything in the Bible up for interpretation? Right? If we can just kind of like, well, maybe it means this, maybe it means that. Are there other things that we can kind of just like, well, maybe if, if that's how you feel about this, you can feel about this. Why is Revelation one of the books that, that we uh, are comfortable with some interpretation disagreements about, but other areas of the Bible we're not? Well, the, the answer is pretty simple. It's because this stuff hasn't happened yet. That's it. That's why. Um, when you read through the Old Testament, all that stuff has already happened. When you read the book of Daniel, when he sees this figure that looks like a son of man being uh, uh, raised up in heaven and the books being opened and being declared, he's the ruler of the nations. Like, there's no ambiguity of like what that might mean and who that is. Like, we know that guy. He's Jesus. When Paul is writing the New Testament and he's making uh, encouragements to the early church and he says, look, here are things that, the, that God himself has outlined all throughout humanity that like these are boundary lines. You don't cross this. This is sin. That stuff's not up for interpretation. It's, it's clear. It is what it is and you either obey or you don't obey. But when we move into Revelation and we're talking about things like today, a thousand year millennial kingdom reign, we can disagree and have different interpretations about what that period of time looks like. Is it a literal 1,000 years? Is it symbolic of a really long period of time? Is it something that's already taken place, something that we're in right now? Is it something that's gonna happen sometime in the future? We can have friendly disagreements about that stuff because it hasn't happened yet. And it doesn't weigh in on matters of salvation. Comfortable? So like, 
at the hesitation of someone saying, well, you're being real liberal with the Bible, and I just kind of feel like you're making it say whatever you want it to say. I just want to manage some expectations on, on why there are so many different interpretations on specific books. It's not because we can just kind of make it seem whatever we want it to seem. And, and the power of a prophet writing in symbolic visions doesn't equip us to be able to say, well, well I can just make the symbols mean whatever they want to mean. The symbols are rooted and tied into symbols earlier in the book, and the key to understanding those symbols are found in this book. And so you don't get to just say, well, okay, well, then the eagle is flying over in this vision, and so, man, I know what eagles are. That's America. So I got it. I know what that is. No, no, you don't get to bring your interpretation to, to the dinner. Like the dinner's already been served and you come and eat and, and understand what has already been set as far as the expectations, you don't get to inject it. But when we're talking about timelines and how this stuff literally works out, there is some flexibility on this because it is stuff that's gonna happen sometime in the future and it doesn't weigh in our salvation. Got it? Okay, so with that in mind, what I wanna do is I wanna give you the three main views of this chapter so that as we go through, you can understand, oh, I understand why people think that. And oh, I, that's, that's the view that I've held. Well, I hadn't really considered that, okay? So I, if you were with us when we walked through the book of Matthew, I think it was last year, I think it was around week 21 where we did Matthew 24. I did this exercise before and I showed some slides. Um, so um, what I wanted to do is if you haven't, if you weren't there, uh, now is the perfect time to walk through this again. Uh, so if you uh, are ready, I brought my laser pointer back. It's been a while, had to change the batteries in it. Uh, but what I wanna show you is the three main views of how people interpret Revelation chapter 20. This chapter talks about a 1,000 1, year period of time, commonly referred to as the millennium or the millennial reign of Christ. Uh, and there are three main views of how this looks. So, and just brace yourself, these names, like I didn't come up with them, they're not great names. So I numbered them. So I'll give you the first one and then it's one and the second one's two and I'll try to reference one, two, and three as we go through because they just aren't great names. But the names do, they are related to the return of Christ. So let's look at the first one. This is called post-millennialism, okay? Post-millennialism means, uh, post after this means that uh, the return of Jesus will happen after a 1,000 peri year period of millennial reign. So essentially this view is that the church age is right here where we are now, this is where we're living, post Jesus' res resurrection. The church age will continue to spread the gospel across the earth and basically things will get better before they get worse. Christians will witness to people across the world and people will be like, man, I, this is good news, I love this. And what will eventually happen as we move further into the future, the church age will blend into a millennium reign where essentially everybody on earth is basically a Christian and everywhere you look, it's like Christmas time and they're singing songs about Jesus in the department stores, it's, it's great. Okay, at that point, towards the end of that, there will be a period of tribulation where Satan will be released and then things get really bad. And at that point, 
Jesus returns, there is one resurrection for believers and unbelievers, they are judged, and then we enter into the new heaven and the new earth, the eternity. Cool? Post-millennialism, guess who's a big fan of post-millennialism? Revivalists like John, Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards was a post-millennialist because he, he's seeing people in mass come to salvation and the way he's looking, he's like, okay, it, that makes sense. I'm seeing entire cities change. I could see this world becoming, getting better before it gets worse. It was a popular view during uh, the revivalist periods, uh, first and second great awakening. Okay, let's go to the next one. So number two, ah, millennialism. Now people that are ah, millennialists don't even like this name. And the reason why is because Ah implies no, so essentially no millennial. But they would say, well that's not what we're actually saying. We're not saying there's no millennium. What we're saying is the millennium is right now during the church age. So they actually prefer a different name, the inaugurated millennialist, but that gets really long and I I just, we'll just call them all millennialist. So the amillennialist believes that the period of time we're living in right now, so from the moment Jesus resurrected from the dead to the point he comes back, that is this period of time we're about to read about right now in Revelation 20. It is the thousand year reign of Christ. He is ruling and reigning over the nations now. Satan has in some form or fashion been bound and restricted and the gospel is preaching and the kingdom of darkness is not at work in the way that it has in the the past. At some point in the future, Satan will be released. He will start spreading mayhem across the world, antichrist, false prophet, period of tribulation, and then it ends with Jesus' return, one resurrection of believers and unbelievers. They will be judged. Then we enter into the new heaven and the new earth. Ah, millennialism. Let's go to the third most popular view. This is called premillennialism. Premillennialism, because the view is that Jesus will return before the millennium. Now, premillennialism, this is fun, has three flavors. We like arguing, don't we? So, premillennialism has three flavors in the form of when they decide Jesus returns. So, premillennialism has a pre trib. Premillennialism. Those are people that believe that during the church age, Jesus will return before a tribulation, rapture the church, a seven year period of tribulation will happen, and then Jesus will return. There are mid trib premillennialists who believe three and a half years of tribulation will happen, then Jesus will return, remove the Christians, then three and a half years of long period of tribulation, then Jesus will return right here. And then there are post-tribulation premillennialists. Have I lost you? (laughs) Awesome. I didn't put those three up there, I'm just telling you, because it doesn't really matter for this purpose in Revelation 20, when Jesus returns, when a rapture happens, all that, because all agree that in premillennialism, Jesus will return, and his return marks a period of time referred to as the millennium or the thousand year reign. When that period ends, at the end of it, Satan will be released from his bondage. There will be a period of judgment. 
man, I don't know why the air conditioner's on. It's freezing. Did you just go ahead and cut up? We have like no air. <laughs> At the end of the thousand year reign, the millennium, there will be a white throne judgment where non-believers are judged and then we enter into eternity. So what is the big difference between post-millennial, amillennial, and pre-millennial? Post and ah, one and two, believe there's only one resurrection. Premillennialists believe that there is a re resurrection when Jesus returns or possibly before if you're pre-trib. And then there is a second resurrection at the end of the millennium where unbelievers are brought back to life and then judged, and then we enter into the new heaven and new earth and eternity. Got it? So with those three views in mind, let's read through the chapter and see how they got to where they got. Are you ready? Revelation chapter 20, let's start in verse one. And before I read, I just wanna say that no matter what your interpretation is, this chapter is really, really powerful because Regardless of your interpretation, the imagery in this is life-changing because what it's promising is, is amazing. So let's get into it. Revelation chapter 20, we're gonna start in verse one. It says, then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil, and Satan and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he, might he may not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended, because after that he must be released for a little while. And then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshiped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. And the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Let's go down to verse 10. When the thousand years were ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. All right. Now let's put the first slide back up on the screen 
This is the post-millennialist view. When they are reading Revelation 20, they're seeing a coming day when Christianity is gonna be the world religion, Satan is going to be bound, the believers are going to rule over the nations, but at the end of this period of the millennium, Satan will be released, there will be a great tribulation, everything we read about in the previous chapters of Revelation about tribulation and the Antichrist, they believe that that will all take place, and there will be this great war that they gather, and the nations will want to fight Christ as he returns, but Jesus will return and crush his enemies. The post-millennialists see the great war at the final seventh bowl or seal being released that we read a, a couple chapters ago. That great war, remember the 100-pound hailstones, all of that? That great war is the same war that's being described in Revelation 20 with Gog and Magog. All the same war, all of it ends the same way. Christ crushes them. But the big thing here is that the, what they're viewing is that on earth, things are gonna get much better before they get worse, and if we just can spread Christianity far enough, it'll affect politics, it'll affect everything, and it will be heaven on earth before things get bad again and Jesus has to return. So that's the post-millennialist. The amillennialist is reading this, and he has an interesting interpretation, because as he's reading through Revelation chapter 20, what he's, what he's seeing is the church age. Now you may be thinking, well I don't, like how do you even get there? Okay, so I'm, I'm seeing, uh, we're being told that uh, John is seeing people being raised from the dead, those who had been beheaded, they're coming to life and they're reigning with Christ for a thousand years. Um, I'm not seeing anybody ruling and reigning with Christ right now. All right, we're told that Satan is gonna be bound. It sure doesn't seem like Satan is bound. Okay, I watch the news. It don't seem like Satan's bound. The amillennialist would say, look, Ephesians chapter two, verse six tells us that when you, uh, uh, when you come to Christ, you are still here in your own bodies, but you are in a spiritual sense seated with him in heavenly places, ruling and reigning with Christ. So it's a symbolic interpretation. It, John sees believers ruling, but they're ruling in the sense that they are ruling alongside of Christ. And so the idea of Satan being bound, it's not a literal, he's bound down into a pit, it's symbolic imagery, and what he's saying is on line with, you remember when Jesus taught about plundering the strong man's house? What do you have to do before you can plunder? You've gotta bind the strong man. And so the idea is, from an amillennialist view, is that the period of time we're in right now we're in a period where Christ's death and resurrection triumphed over the enemy in a sense that he has now been restricted in his rule and reign over the nations, and Christ is ruling and reigning over the nations. And the command that he has given to his church is to go and spread the gospel across the world. So when they're reading this, they're saying, okay, uh, I'm seeing a period of time where Christ is ruling in a spiritual sense. It's been inaugurated, but not consummated. He hasn't returned, hasn't physically started happening yet, but in a sense, it is happening. But at the end of this, Satan will be released. His, his, he, he will be unbound, he will be released, and that will kick off the period of tribulation, where Satan will start recruiting for this dark trinity 
and he'll find an antichrist and a false prophet and everything we've talked about so far up to this. You see how, you, how non-millennials can see that perspective? They're looking at it and they're like, look, the cleanest way we can just see scripture is just like the church age, that, that's, that's a period of time. And then he's gonna return and then we enter into eternity. That's it. There's no, there's no need for another period of time. There's no need for other things to happen before. It's just clean cut this and then this. It makes sense except there's a couple things that don't really line up. Um, But the picture is that Satan, once he's released, will rally the nations, and the war that we read about in the previous chapters of Revelation at the end of the tribulation, as the seals and the trumpets and the bowls are being poured out, bowls primarily, that war and what's talked about in Gog and Magog are the same war and they will be destroyed. So the first two views hold a similar perspective. They just, they just differ on what they see the millennium is. It's either happening right now or it will happen sometime in the future before Jesus returns. Now the premillennialist reads Revelation 20 a little bit differently. And I would venture to say that most of you didn't walk in here knowing that you were a premillennialist, but you probably are because most modern Christians grow up with a sense uh, uh, that the way things are gonna hatch out is that any moment Jesus is gonna return, he's gonna snatch us out, and then a period of tribulation is gonna happen, then he's gonna return, then it's gonna appear to a millennium, and then it's eternity. Most of us in here are walking around with that view, so this probably lines up with most of what you're saying or what you believe, um, minus where you would say uh, uh, a rapture would take place. But the premillennialist reads this and says, man, what I see here is an amazing picture on earth. Following Christ's return, what I'm reading here is symbolic. Jesus, when he returns, he's going to, and we'll put the third one on there. When he returns, he's going to bind Satan for a period of a thousand years. Now, premillennialists will disagree on whether that's a literal thousand years or a symbolic thousand years. Is it literally a thousand or just kind of a long period of time? But they're all, they're all in agreement. Man, what I'm seeing here is that like, there is coming a time on earth when Satan and all of his wickedness and darkness and his rule and reign is gonna be restricted and there's no more influence of darkness on planet earth. And then what I see is I see Christ coming down and ruling, reigning over the nations and who is he gonna put in charge over the nations? He puts believers in charge over the nations. He puts his children, his family members over the nations. And so what we're seeing from the premillennialist view is a period of time is gonna come after the tribulation where Jesus returns, he ends the war, he binds up Satan, and then he spreads the gospel of peace across all of the nations, and he asks believers to institute it. So ruling reign with Christ means that you have responsibility in this period of time to execute his wishes. And this is not completely out of bounds. Paul instructs the church in Corinth, look, I don't know why you're spending so much time arguing with each other and taking each other to court. Don't you know that you're gonna judge angels one day? There is this sense that one of the things that we will be doing in the new kingdom is exercising his authority over the dominion of planet Earth taking his wishes and executing them as those who rule and reign as parts of his kingdom. And so the premillennialist is reading this and thinking, man, this looks pretty good. 
because we're promised either a literal thousand years or really long time that earth is going to be made like pre-fall Eden. This is beautiful. This is something to look forward to because I don't know about you, but like I want to live in a pre-fall Eden. I want to know what, what it's like to, to own a home and not feel like you have to work long hours and take out credit just to make sure that you can make a payment on something. I, I, I would love to figure out like what a world would be like to, to feel like, man, I could, I see a tree. I mean, I want to climb that tree without the worry of me falling out of that tree and breaking my leg and having to recover for the next tree. I would love to be able to age and not have to worry about cancer around the corner. Do you know what I'm talking about? Like this sense of like, I would love to live in a world where there's no sickness and there's no hunger and there's no pain and I can walk down the street without the, without the worry of getting mugged. I could go to the gas station and, 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 or the ATM and not be afraid that somebody's gonna st stick a gun in my face and take my money. I, 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 I would love to live in a world without sin and darkness. It sounds pretty good, doesn't it? It was like that before mankind messed it up. It was a pretty great place to live. And the premillennialist is reading Revelation 20 and they're saying, I, I see that. But then this weird thing happens. At the end, Satan is gonna be released to deceive the nations into war and they, some of the nations fall for it. They fall for his age old schemes. Eden is reinstituted. Christ rules over the nations and then Satan is released for a short period of time and the same thing happens again. He deceives the nations for war and we're told Gog and Magog gather together, but then we're told that Jesus crushes them. He ends that conflict and he crushes evil for good. Now I personally, maybe like many of you, lean towards the premillennialist view. I, I lean towards that view because, well, one, I think it's a beautiful picture of scripture. Uh, it, it makes sense. I can see a period of time where that is, but I don't lean that way just because I like it. I lean that way because I think that it aligns mostly with Old Testament database scripture. Let me just give you a few references. There are more than this, but let me just give you a few. Isaiah 65, last year when we were going through our Isaiah message series, I referenced this, but Isaiah 65 verses 17 through 25 talks about a period of time that looks a lot like Eden. Maybe you remember this, that there's gonna be a time where the lion lays down with the lamb that a child is gonna be playing with a cobra without the fear of it being bitten. That a man, like a, a young man, is gonna go way, way into, like at 100 years, he's gonna still feel like a little boy. Isaiah sees, as he's prophesying, a period of time in the future where some of the temporal rules of humanity and earth are in play, but there is no sickness, there's no sadness, there's no wickedness, there's no sin, there's no animals turning on people, there's no people turning on people. When he looks at this picture, he gives a pretty vivid description of a period of time that looks similar to where we're living now, but way better. This is also seen in the structure of the book of Ezekiel. It starts in chapter 36 and it goes on through chapter 48. 
They mirror the structure of Revelation in a really interesting way. Ezekiel 36 and 37 talks about Israel, which is God's people, being restored under a Messiah who will rule over the nations. That's 36 and 37. And then 38 and 39, we're told that after the Messiah is ruling over the nations, a period of war breaks out, and actually Gog and Magog are referenced in 38. And then from 40 to 48, we're told about this picture that Ezekiel has, where after that war, the nations are crushed, evil is no more, and Ezekiel sees this vision of a new temple where God is in the midst of his people. And not in the sense that like, well, the temple's over there and then we live over here. The vision he sees, everything's temple. The whole world is temple. The size structure of this temple, Ezekiel sees, is massive. Bigger than anything anybody could have imagined in previous temple structures. And this temple, it doesn't have a holy of holies. It's got an altar where sacrifices are made, but other pieces of the furniture are missing. So we don't look at this as a physical temple that's gonna be built, it's a symbolic representation of what God is saying through temple imagery and symbolism that my desire ultimately for all time is to be with my people. I don't need to be locked in some little holy of holies room where only certain people can come certain days of the year. My desire is that that entire structure gets blown out and the whole world is temple. Not just some garden in Eden, the whole world is garden. Now, I want to go back and touch on some of these things because these are some of the things that get referenced most of all. The, I, the, the, the reference to Gog and Magog is really interesting. And, and I'm not sure why, but like this really gets people. When people like really talk about this a lot, they're like, who's Gog and Magog? And, and if you read some old, um, like when I say old, I mean like 70s, 60s, 70s, 80s books on uh, the end times, you may come across some of this stuff. Gog is a reference back to Ezekiel, um, but the, in, the, the reference in Ezekiel is interesting because the reference in Ezekiel says, Gog of the land of Magog. So it seems he referenced a guy from a land whose name sounds similar to him, Gog of the land of Magog, and then it says the chief prince of these regions. Now in Hebrew, the word chief is a word, well, is the word rosh. So in Ezekiel, the prophecy is at the end of this millennium, the, the, the nations will gather Gog of Magog. They're going to gather together. And so there's this word chief that looks like rosh. And long time ago, when people are doing interpretations, they see that, and what do they think? Russia. So, may, and you may not even know why you think this, but you're just like, man, I'm watching Russia. I don't know why. Somebody maybe said something in a sermon 40 years ago, you need to watch Russia, and so I'm watching them. <laughs> Look, 
that is just poor interpretation because what that is is taking a Hebrew word that sounds like an English word and saying there's a one-to-one comparison and there just isn't. All right, I don't speak another language, but let's just imagine for the sake of argument that in Spanish, the word chocolate sounds a lot like uh, a candy bar, but in, in Spanish, like it means something completely different like bus. You can't take a word in one language and just say that, oh, well, just because it sounds like this in this language, it means this in another language. That's not how language works. And so we've been kind of brought up to think like, oh man, I need to be watching Russia. I'm not saying don't watch Russia. (laughs) You should keep an eye on Russia. But what I'm saying is that what we're walking away with interpretation-wise is not this is the guy who's gonna cause all the trouble. But what we are seeing is that Gog and Magog, um, interestingly enough, back in Ezekiel, weren't actual places. There's no map that you can discover. Most people think that it was probably a foreign tribe way on the outskirts of Turkey, like way, way far away from where uh, Israel, uh, they were in bondage at this time when it was written over in Babylon. So uh, this region over in Turkey would have been like a really, really far long way, a place really far away. Uh, And so what Ezekiel is saying is that at the end times, there will be these nations that will come from the four corners of the earth a long way away, and they will want to do battle with the Christ who's been ruling and reigning in physical form for a thousand years. And they'll want to do war with him because Satan is the one who's tempting them to war. And so when you, when you lay those things on top of each other, what you're seeing is this reference of these two places in Revelation 20. What John is doing is he's taking prophecy, database references from Ezekiel, and he's saying, hey, I'm gonna tell you what's gonna happen in the future, but it's not something new. Nothing in Revelation is new. Everything that's talked about in Revelation has already been talked about earlier in the book. And so what John is doing is he's saying, look, I see this picture of what's gonna happen and the best way I can describe it is the way that Ezekiel described it. And that's why those words are being pulled from the database. Does that make sense? So as I said, when I started reading this chapter, it doesn't matter where your interpretation falls because this chapter is unbelievably beautiful. Because what we're seeing here, no matter when this happens, is that believers who die are brought back to life with new bodies. It doesn't matter where you fall, that's gonna happen. Your flesh is currently breaking down and will one day die, but that isn't the end of your story. You're told that sometime in the future, you will be raised to new life, and in the twinkling of an eye, you will be transformed and given a glorified body that is fit to live in eternity. That's exciting. That gets me really excited. This flesh that breaks down and gets old and the older you get, like you can't even get out of bed without pulling something, that's going to come to an end. It won't be like that forever because Christ has a plan. He wants to redeem you from sickness and sin, but he doesn't want to just redeem you and say, man, doesn't it feel good to not have that? Now he physically wants to give you the realization of that. It is a thing that we believe and is visible in some form and fashion right now, and that our sins have been forgiven and our souls are washed clean. But once our resurrected body takes form, like everything that is true spiritually is then true literally physically for eternity. It's exciting. That's one of the amazing things from this book. The other one is that believers are rewarded with reigning with Christ. 
that, what, that, that there is work to be done in the new kingdom. And this is interesting because uh, before I became a believer, my perception of Christians is that, man, what you're hoping for is to not go to hell and then get transformed into some kind of like weird, like baby angel form, maybe kind of, and that for the rest of eternity, you're just gonna be floating around and singing and playing on a harp. And like, that's it. And I'm not saying if like, if, if you, if being a baby angel playing on a harp is like, <laughs> is your thing, that's cool. But it just wasn't appealing to me. And I'll be honest with you, that's part of the gospel. We've been preaching for a long time and the world just isn't like, that's eternity. I don't, I don't know if I'm down for that. Well, the Bible isn't down for that either because it's not what it's teaching. The Bible is teaching that you are resurrected and in a physical form, just like Jesus rose from the dead and he walked around and was seen by 500 people and he's eating meals and he's having conversations. That's what eternity is going to look like. You're coming back to life and you'll be able to do things in the same way that you do things now, minus the sin, minus the sickness, minus the brokenness, minus the death. I don't know, but that seems like a gospel worth preaching. It's a, it's a core component to the message. Resurrection is the hope of the nations. It is not some political document that if we just all get on the same page and sign, things will get better. No, it is things have to die to be reborn and then things get better. That's the gospel message. But once they die, they come back to life and they're transformed. And the other good news from this chapter is that Satan is bound and he's ultimately defeated for good. I like that. The great serpent who grew into a dragon, he needs to be punished and we're told he will be. But the question that I get most about this chapter is, okay, well, if he's gotta be punished, why is he released a second time? That doesn't make any sense. I don't understand, Jesus, if you're gonna return and you're going to judge the nations, you're going to do all the stuff, and you're going to institute your people of the nations, and, and it's going to be a, a period of a thousand years of peace and prosperity. Why in the world would you let Satan return? Well, the bad news is that John doesn't give us an answer. The Bible doesn't say. But if you, but if you read the word of God, you can walk away with a sense of maybe why God is doing this. So this isn't like what... John's interpretation of why, but this would be my assessment of why God allows Satan to be released a second time after he's bound at the end of that millennial reign. I think it has to do with vindication. What do I mean by that? Well, I want you to imagine planet Earth being ruled and reigned by Christ. He is the king over all creation. And whether it's a literal thousand years or a long period of time, all of earth is marked by prosperity and health. The entire world is in Eden. It is gorgeous. It is beautiful. But at the end of that, we're told that humanity still rebels. Come on. Uh, what? Uh, what message could possibly be found in a period of unprecedented prosperity and health and wealth across the nations and mankind still rebels when they're tempted after Satan's release? Well, I tell you, it, it communicates one really important message. 
that sin has nothing to do with poverty or social status or external circumstances. The brokenness in our world is not because some have none and some have all. The brokenness in our world is not connected and therefore cannot be solved by collecting all of the broken things and all the wrong things and just fixing them in our own human ways. Because in a world where everything is perfect, humanity still rebels. So what is the value of a thousand year reign where Satan is ultimately released to tempt the nations again? This chapter exposes one of Satan's greatest lies of all time. That if you just eliminate crime and poverty and injustice, sin will disappear. Have you, have you heard that? Because I can tell you who's selling that. The prostitute of Babylon is selling that. The pinnacles of human exaltation have been selling for years that if you just give us enough money and enough power, we will solve all of the issues. Economic will fix it. Crime will fix it. And if we can just fix these little corners of earth that are broken, everything's gonna be fine. The millennial rain blows that out of the water because in a period of time where everything is fixed and Christ is ruling and reigning, the nations are still, still susceptible to the temptation of the enemy, which means sin doesn't originate outside you, it originates inside you which means you got a big problem. Because if it starts in you, then you can't fix you. And somebody else that it also started in can't fix you. Your problems can't be fixed by more creativity from the inside or the outside. There has to be a third party who's not involved in the system that comes in to bring reconciliation. And there's only one who's done that, and it's Christ. So to the argument that we can, if we can just get the right economic conditions and if we can just erase history and, and, and injustice and we can just make it disappear, then everything will, will, unity will grow and we'll all sing Kumbaya and we'll all finally be on the same page. The millennial reign exposes that that is a lie and it asks, Revelation 20 asks believers today, quit believing that lie. Now let's go to verse 11. It says, then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it from his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found from them. Could you imagine standing before someone whose just presence makes earth and sky want to run for the hills? And then I saw the dead great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. And then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. That is a scary thought. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, Death and Hades gave up the dead 
Death and Hades are symbolic language all through the Bible of the afterlife. All right, death and Hades, uh, that reference is not a place, a physical place you go to. It is like there is the world we live in and then there is the afterlife, death and Hades. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them and then they were judged, each one of them according to what they had done. And then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So following the millennial reign, the final judgment is executed on mankind. This is another reason why I hold to a premillennial view. It seems pretty clear that there's two judgments. There's two resurrections. Jesus resurrects the dead when he comes back and then there's a second resurrection at the end of a period of the millennial reign. So when John is describing these two references, the second one he's talking about is this great white throne judgment. Believers aren't here, they're not being judged. They've been forgiven. But there are those among the dead who've counted themselves on team dragon. They don't want anything to do with the lamb. They have said, I don't want you, Jesus, covering my sins and my deeds with your blood. I'd rather go it on my own and take my chances. I think I've done more good things than bad. And so I'll stand before this guy whose presence is so powerful that literally earth and sky run for the hills. I'd rather stand before him and take my chances. And so as the dead stand before this seat, the books are opened and there are many books. There are books that have a record of everything every person on planet earth has ever done or thought or said. But then there's this other book, this book of life. And those who are written in this book, if their names are in here, it, it doesn't seem to matter that what's in these other books. If your name is in the book of life, if you've been born again and you've been marked by the lamb, then the works that have been recorded in your life don't seem to weigh into the equation because those who are tossed into the lake of fire are those who are not found in this book. All right, well, if they're not found in this book, then we go to this book and judge by the deeds. And there's not a single person whose deeds measure up to the deeds that are found by the guy who wrote this other book, the book of life. And so what we're seeing is non-believers standing before a great white throne. Their deeds are not recorded and their judgment is eternity in the lake of fire. My question as I'm reading this is, Lord, why the, why, why the lake of fire? Because the lake of fire is the home for Satan, the antichrist and the false prophet. And if your name is not written in the book of life, it means your home isn't with the lamb. Therefore, your home is with the other guy. And we talked about this last week, that the, the book of Revelation is filled with these two contrasts. There's not 97 options on planet Earth on where to go and what to do and how to choose. There's two. There's two teams. There's two marks. That's it. 
And if your name isn't found with the home of the lamb, then you automatically go to the other home. But there's good news because you don't have to go to the other home. You don't have to spend eternity in the lake of fire. This room is filled with people who've made the decision to say, I trust you, Jesus. And you have now been saved from that lake of fire. And that for me, as frightening as this picture is, and how it's designed to wake us up, I think contains a message of gratitude and thanksgiving for us today. Because while this chapter is powerful and contains one of the hardest truths in scripture, that is that if you don't trust Jesus with your soul, you will spend eternity in torment in the lake of fire. We kind of lost that along the way. There's lots of people who call themselves believers like, well, I don't know about the whole hell thing. Maybe not. Maybe that's one of those things where we can kind of just read our own interpretation into. I got bad news for you. That ain't one of them things. There's a real place, the lake of fire that was prepared for the great one who rebelled, and now anyone who wants to follow him will also live in that home for eternity. It is a dangerous game to play, pretending that doesn't exist, and it is a sobering thought that some folks that we know might be headed in that direction. So how do we leave this chapter rejoicing? How do we leave this chapter filled with gratitude? Well, the truth is that this home was slated for you. The lake of fire was the destiny, it was the place you were headed before a guy named Jesus called your name and saved your life. And we've spent a lot of time in this book thinking about the coming judgment and those who are counted among the wicked. But what I wanna do today as we close is I want us to just spend a moment meditating on who we are and where we are and what this book says about us. Because the truth is that this is not our home. This is not where we will be spending eternity. It breaks my heart that some will, but for a moment I want us to just fill our hearts with gratitude that we serve a God who took on human flesh, allowed his own creation to murder him, went down into the grave, tasted death, and then rose again so that you and you and you and you would never have to taste eternal punishment. that what's coming your way is a resurrected body, cured of cancer and sickness and sorrow and sin, and you will live in that resurrected body alongside the risen Christ for the rest of eternity.
We're not talking about some spirit in the sky you'll never meet. I'm talking about a real resurrected man with flesh and blood and you will come to him one day and you will hug him and embrace him and you will share a meal with him and he will laugh at your jokes and you'll laugh at his and you'll go to bed every night thinking that you finally are serving under somebody worth serving under. That this guy is worth the, he's worth it. Like there's never been a president or a king who has had the same worth that this guy has. And now he's not just fighting for power, he has all the power and everything you see, he created with the words of his own mouth, including this eternity and that body you're living in today. So my desire this week as we enter into Thanksgiving is to start looking at this chapter and our lives with way more gratitude than we've ever lived with. It is so easy to buy what Babylon is selling and live unhappy. To be convinced that if you could just buy this next thing, then somehow you will be happier. That there's a hole right here in your heart, and if you could just get this thing that God told you not to have, but if you could just get it, if you just get your hands on it, wrap your arms around it, then things would be better. The invitation for Revelation 20 is that our names are in a book that it's gonna save us from the lake of fire. We've been raised to new life. And the lives we will live in eternity, when you are resurrected and you're looking around, the only thought you'll have in your mind is, it was all worth it. Every pain, every sorrow, every sickness, every tear shed, The moment you see your loved ones who've passed on and they've got their resurrected bodies, you will look at your spouse who's passed or your child who's passed or your grandparents that you loved and their mood. You will look at them and and as Christ is wiping your tears away, you will say, baby, it was all worth it. That to me, is the message of this book. You're not promised times will be easy here, but you are promised that if you endure and you overcome, it will all be worth it. Let's pray. Hello again, it's Pastor Marshall, and I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this message. If you want to hear other messages or maybe find out more about our church, you can visit redhillschurch.com. From there, you'll find links to our social media pages, message archive, and ways you can support the ministry work. Thanks again for spending time with us, and God bless.